Okay then, so as promised, um, I'm going to give you a bit of a 101 on child sex offenders. Um, I'm going to cover a number of different areas. And I think it's important to point out sort of why am I doing this? I'm doing this, I think, to try and help people understand how this stuff all works. Because I think if you understand it, you are in a much better position to protect not just your children, but any child. Because to be fair, it's something that um, even quite experienced police officers, believe it or not, don't really understand this stuff. And the sad reality is that uh, probably the very great majority of sexual offences against children will never come to light, will never be disclosed, and only a very, very tiny, tiny proportion of the overall totality of offending will ever come to notice of the authorities. And what that means is that it allows um, those who have got a sexual interest in children to continue to abuse kids and uh, evade detection. So my view is that if you at least understand this stuff a bit better, then you're in a much better position to protect your own kids and other children who you may encounter in the course of your life or in the course of your job. So it's important to point out that pretty much everything I'm going to describe in the next half an hour or so uh, comes from training that I've received and my staff received over the years from uh, the National Crime Agency, CEOP, uh, which is the Child Exploitation Online Protection Centre, um, and specifically uh, Dr. Joe Sullivan. And I'll just give Joe uh, a bit of a, a sort of a, a plug. Uh, if you go onto his his website, which is Forensic Solutions, so I think that's www.forensicsolutions.com, you can read about him. Uh, so Joe has spent a lifetime uh, assisting law enforcement professionals, social workers, prison officers, probation officers, um, understand child sex offenders. And I did three or four courses run by Joe over the years to help me and my staff understand the most effective ways of investigating child sex offenders. So Joe's a fantastic guy, incredibly knowledgeable. He's worked in prisons, um, in treatment centres for sex offenders for many, many years. So what he doesn't know about all this stuff just basically isn't worth knowing. So what I'm going to talk about uh, now is um, I'm going to go through a number of different key themes. So first of all, I'm going to talk about what is a paedophile because um, there's different types. Um, and then we're going to talk about what is the motivation, what motivates people who uh, commit sexual offences against children. Uh, we'll talk about then what's known as the cycle of abuse. So what are the different stages or steps that a sex offender has to um, cover in order to gain access to a child and sexually abuse them? Uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about grooming. So what is grooming? How does it work? Uh, and then finally, I'll maybe just touch a little bit on the internet in terms of what is the internet? What impact has that had on sexual offending against children? So first of all, what is a paedophile? Well, it's a, it's a word uh, term that's sort of used, uh, bandied around quite a lot, but it doesn't really help you understand exactly 
the different types of people who might sort of fit into that category. So in uh, clinical terms, they talk about there's three different um, types of what might collectively be termed as paedophiles. There's a classic paedophile who is, has got a sexual interest. Well, they've all got sexual interest in, in children, so that's the first common denominator. But a, a classic paedophile is someone who has got a sexual interest in children from anything from birth through to um, puberty, so prepubescent children. Um, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will all have a interest in uh, every child between that sort of age range. Some some will be exclusively interested in very very young children. Others will be more interested in a certain. There'll be a certain age group that that is their preferred age group. Okay, so that's a classic paedophile. Not to puberty. Then um, you have what's known as a hebophile, and hebophiles. Are in, I've got a sexual interest in children generally from puberty up to approximately, and none of this stuff is cast in stone, approximately sort of 14, 15 years old. That's a hebophile. And then there's another category, which is probably a lesser discussed category of ephebophile, and that is someone who's got an interest, a sexual interest in children between the ages, generally speaking, of about 14 to about 18. So um, so then you talk about, okay, so are they interested? Um, so you can break down each of those categories further by saying, um, right, are they interested in boys? Or are they interested in girls? Or are they interested in both? So um, other than in a clinical setting um, where someone like Joe Sullivan gains the complete cooperation of a child sex offender in a clinical arena, which is, you know, I think even Joe would probably admit is quite rare that someone even in that setting will be completely honest about about their preferences. But um, certainly, uh, in my experience, if you do get someone who's willing to talk to you and tell you uh, exactly what it is that, that that is their thing, they will, you know, they will, someone will say, I, I'm interested in um, boys between the ages of three and seven. Um, others will say, well, I'm interested in both, but n not under the age of sort of nine or 10. I prefer them between 11 or 12. Um, you know, so there's, it's, it's, so I think the point I'm making here is that it's not a case of um, all paedophiles being interested in all children, albeit there are those individuals who cast the net very, very wide across both age and gender. Okay, so the next thing that's just worth um, talking about is uh, the offenders themselves in terms of their gender. Um, so it'll come as no particular surprise to you to find out that the lion's share, the vast majority of offenders are male. Um, but having said that, there is a significant minority of female sex offenders who have got an interest, sexual interest in children. And that's one of those things that's frequently sort of misrepresented by the media, you know, where they'll, they'll talk about the, the randy teacher seducing the 14, 15 year old boy in her class. 
or whatever, this kind of stuff, which is sort of titillating sort of nonsense. But the bottom line is uh, that person is a child sex offender, uh, whichever way you look at it. And, and there are also uh, women who are uh, have got a deviant sexual interest in very young children and will actually, um, you know, uh, supply their own children for the sexual gratification of others. So one question that a lot of people ask is, are paedophiles uh, born or are they made? Um, so I think it's probably fair to say, and uh, I hope that I'm right, I'm pretty sure I am, um, from the training that I've had, is that most pedof most people who would be classed as paedophiles, i.e. people who've got a sexual interest in children, realise that they've got a sexual interest in children roughly in their sort of early to mid-teens. Um, so in terms of that whole nature-nurture thing, so are paedophiles, um, you know, are they hardwired to have a sexual interest in children? Well, I think a lot of the available research would suggest that, that they are. Um, and... Uh, Another kind of common myth about those individuals is that, oh, well, that's because they're doing this because they've been sexually abused as children themselves. Um, that is not entirely a myth because I think there's a, a fairly strong uh, correlation between a fairly large number of child sex offenders and uh, them claiming that they were sexually abused as children. So... Um, the question, of course, is were they actually sexually abused as children or are they using that as a, uh, a means of gaining the sympathy or the understanding of those um, after they've been caught? And the research tends to show that most people who we know were sexually abused as children do not go on to offend as adults. So it's something of a myth. And the other question that's frequently asked is, can you cure, so to speak, um, a paedophile of uh, having a sexual interest in children? And I think, again, it's fair to say that you can't. Um, there are lots of sex offender treatment programs out there, and the evidence tends to show that, at best, you can teach someone to manage that behaviour so they learn to uh, manage their fantasy life. They have therapy to help them uh, distract themselves from that thinking. Uh, they then have to avoid putting themselves into positions or places where they are going to have contact with children, which is going to uh, put them into a position where they're likely to reoffend. But in terms of changing the fundamental fact that they have a sexual interest in children, there is very little evidence to show that that is possible. So the next um, point I want to come on to is uh, motivation. What, what motivates a child uh, sex offender? So there's a number of different things, really. And again, everyone is different. Everyone is unique. But there are a number of broad categories that, that they can fall into. So um, let's deal with the first, uh, which talks about, we talk about sort of those who have got a deviant sexual fascination with children. Um, so their motivations are sort of almost exclusively sexual However, 
you know, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, they all have a sexual motivation of some description. I think the difference is the degree to which the motivation is sexual or something else. So in that first category of, of a deviant sexual interest in children, it is almost exclusively sexual, I think it's fair to say. Um, and I think the next broad category that's worth just um, talking about is those who have some sort of need for personal affirmation. So someone who feels um, that they gain the affirmation of the positive affirmation from children where they probably don't feel that they get the same affirmation from adults. So in a kind of a you know, a clumsy sort of way, and I can almost hear Joe Sullivan shouting at me right now saying, no, no, it's not like... But I think it would be fair to say that they they are sort of somewhere, somehow stuck, uh, psychologically stuck at a particular age and have never really moved on from that age. Uh, and the next uh, the next category, which is which is very closely related to the final category, the next category you could describe broadly as individuals who are interested in power and control so they are the classic control freak individual who um, likes having a child um, in a submissive um, situation sexually submissive situation so that's their thing they get off on the power and control and then the final category is those who are motivated out of just pure sadism. In other words, they enjoy inflicting pain and they are sort of uh, aroused, uh, psychologically aroused or sexually aroused um, by inflicting pain. Um, and those last two categories of power and control and sadism would probably be sort of more closely linked, I suppose. Um, and then you, you also have you know, individuals who might straddle a number of those different categories. But but loosely speaking, I think you can broadly break them down into those four categories. So I appreciate I'm really properly, um, you know, going at this very, very quickly. This is a real whistle-stop tour. There's multiple PhD theses written on each element of what I'm talking about so you know I'm, I'm, I apologize if if this is uh, just this is just the tip of the iceberg but I think it's really really important that people kind of understand at least a little bit about how this all works. So we've talked about um, the different types of paedophiles um, we've talked about the motivation what motivates them um, and now we need to talk about the what could be classed I suppose as the spiral of abuse so Joe Sullivan goes to great length to explain how this all works and I'll try and pass on some of that knowledge to you. So if you've got someone who is basically motivated to um, sexually engage with children then um, they um, need to move through a number of different stages, psychological stages, in order to uh, arrive at a point where they are hands-on uh, contact, as we would say in uh, safeguarding, contact abuse. So, so it doesn't just, you know, they don't just move straight from 
having this motivation to to straight out sexual abuse uh, in most of the most of the time. There's a number of psychological stages that need to sort of work their way through. So, so Joe would talk about um, getting over the wall. So if you imagine uh, there's a psychological wall uh, that's stopping someone from uh, acting out uh, their the sort of um, their desires, their sexual desires towards children. And, and that wall is built of bricks of uh, guilt and fear. So just to talk what I mean by that, they, they know perfectly well that it's a massive societal taboo to have sex with a child. Um, and they feel guilty about that and they feel scared that if they do what they would like to do, they will end up um, getting caught um, and probably going to prison. So, so they need to have some way of kind of getting over that, that wall of guilt and fear. So what they do in order to do that is they, they use um, what we call cognitive distortions, which is basically screwed up thinking. Uh, and they will use, um, so if you imagine um, uh, you're trying to uh, lose weight or you're trying to sort of drink less alcohol or stop smoking or something, you will, you will use thinking that will be designed to kind of make it okay for you to do what you want to do. So you'll say, well, I deserve it. I've had a hard day. Um, you know, one won't harm me. Uh, yeah, it's a Friday. So, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But basically, all of that distorted thinking is is getting in the way of your ultimate goal, which is uh, to lose weight or to stop smoking. And in the same way, um, a, a someone who's got a sexual interest in children will use distorted thinking to sort of rationalise and justify, um, you know, what, what they want to do. Um, so they'll say things like, well, you know, lots of people do this. And if you look back in history, you know, it was perfectly normal for children to be married off at the age of 12 or 13. So therefore, you know, this is just a society's got a bit of a hang up and, you know, eventually it, it'll all come around full circle and we'll all be having sex with 12 year olds again. Or, you know, they'll, they'll use all sorts of weird kind of messed up thinking in order to sort of get over that um, wall. Um, but one of the main things that they will do, um, one of the main sort of drivers to getting over the wall is, uh, is fantasy, a uh, combination of uh, fantasy and uh, masturbation. So uh, they will fantasize about whatever it is, the, the particular thing that they are interested in, and they will then use masturbation um, uh, which is kind of becomes like a self-reinforcing way of um, rewarding them for that fantasy. So as, as time goes on, as the fantasy life, their fantasy, internal fantasy life becomes probably more richer and more specific, um, and then the, um, the, the, the sort of self-rewarding masturbation and orgasm that goes with that, then um, basically over time, and you know it might be it might be many months, it might be many years, that wall of guilt and fear becomes lower and lower and lower um, to the point that they then uh, probably move into the act of planning uh, 
which will involve the grooming process. So they've arrived at a mindset where they have justified to themselves that uh, what they're planning to do is okay. And they're now thinking about, okay, so how do I actually kind of turn this into reality now? So uh, they know, because uh, they're not stupid, that you just don't dive in and start, um, you know, sexually abusing a child, you know, who, who doesn't know them or, you know, they need to gain the trust of the child. Um, there's different stages to the grooming process. So let's start right at the start. So first of all, they need to get themselves into position where they've got access to a child uh, or children. So for some people, that will be a deliberate career choice. So it might be someone who deliberately becomes a teacher, um, knowing that that will give them access to kids. Um, you know, and this is how deep and, the, and strong the motivation will be for, for some people. They will actually choose their job on the basis of being able to access children in order to sexually abuse them. Um, so it might be a sports coach. It might be someone joining the, the clergy um, so we talk about those sort of people in safeguarding world as people in a position of trust. But their motivations for getting into that role will, will be, maybe not exclusively, but certainly a big part of their motivation for getting into that job will be gaining access to children. So, so the first part of the grooming process, get access to the child. Okay, so the next bit of the grooming process is about gaining the trust of a child or children uh, in order to effectively reduce their resistance. So again, that might be by ingratiating themselves with the child, um, you know, being their friend. And this is the thing about the grooming process that people need to get their heads around. Uh, people who've got a sexual uh, interest in children are very happy to play the long game Okay, so that means um, they will be very, very careful about about what they do in order to ensure that when they're ready and when the child's ready, then the likelihood of being discovered is extremely small. So they will have groomed that child so effectively that the child may believe that this is just something completely natural and normal. Or they will have, um, you know, put the child on a massive guilt trip, um, making them feel that um, everything that's happening to them is their fault. That, that you know, the classic one being, you know, if anybody ever found out about this, um, your mum and dad wouldn't love you anymore. Um, or uh, you'll be taken away or all of this kind of stuff. And there's other, there's other again, going back to that point about the different types of um, paedophile, someone who is uh, motivated out of power and control or sadism will just frighten the shit out of the child, who they will just make them feel so terrified that they will feel very confident that that child is not going to disclose anything to anyone. So... Uh, the next part of the grooming process, they've gained access to a child, they've, they've identified a, a child who is the, the target because um, on the basis of the sex, age, uh, temperament of the child. Um, so they find a, 
a child or children who are who are suitable, I suppose, for want of a better word, then again, part of the simultaneous process of grooming is to groom those individuals around the child. Um, so that could be the carers, it could be anyone who is in the life of that child to make them, um, you know, throw them off guard, to, to make them feel um, completely comfortable uh, that that person is in the child's life. And, 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 and again, this is all going on simultaneously with grooming the child. So again, part of that might be gradually having more and more physical contact, non-sexual physical contact with the child and to um, you know to engage in there's all sorts of different ways so I don't even want to give examples because that makes if I say tickling or something like that and you'll think oh it's only tickling it's not just tickling it could just be having a hand on the child's arm or uh, it's just that gradual sort of physical contact with the child so the child isn't completely freaked out about it and the people around the child just don't see any that there's anything particularly wrong so so yeah so grooming uh, the environment, grooming those in, in, involved in the child's life. And, and this is done, you know, in order to minimise the likelihood of being found out and also to reduce uh, the resistance of the child. So, so you can see how uh, the entire sort of life cycle of the, the preparatory stages of that life cycle have now been satisfied. So you've got someone who's got all of the right motivations, they have um, got over the wall of guilt and fear. Uh, they've reinforced that uh, behaviour um, using cognitive distortions to justify to themselves uh, what they're doing. Um, they've reinforced it using uh, their rich fantasy life and masturbation. And, and then they have created the opportunity whilst at the same time ensuring that... Um, they prevent their sort of disclosure of the child uh, or discovery by others. So really the final um, kind of piece of the jigsaw, I suppose, is, is moving into live, live abuse. So again, like all of the other stuff that I've described before, it's not a case of one size fits all. And certainly in my experience, uh, no two child sex offenders are alike in terms of what it is that they enjoy. And, um, you know, I don't think I need to go into all the, the gory details, but uh, I suppose it would probably be fair to say that they are as varied as sexuality would be for most adults in their sort of, you know, more normal uh, life. So um, you've had the 20 minutes gallop through the world of child sex offenders. It's probably just worth uh, talking a little bit about the impact of the internet. So the I think it's fair to say that the scale and volume of images of uh, children, sexual uh, images of children and videos on the internet has grown and grown and grown and shows absolutely no sign whatsoever of diminishing. And uh, what that has done is it has, I suppose, in many ways, allowed, whilst it's a massive social evil and there's a massive amount of work going on to try and uh, get this stuff off the internet, but I think it's fair to say that they're currently fighting a bit of a losing battle. 
Um, what that has done is because of the efforts of law enforcement, it has allowed um, law enforcement and safeguarding professionals to identify those who've got an in sexual interest in children a lot more effectively today than it probably would have been possible to do um, many years ago because of the uh, technical efforts of law enforcement to monitor all of this stuff globally we're now able to identify people relatively easily which I suppose is a good thing but of course the uh, internet also does two things that weren't possible years ago so firstly it provides access to child sexual abuse material that that would have been very very hard to come by uh, you know 20 years ago and it also provides uh, opportunities to uh, network and meet uh, like-minded individuals in various chat rooms on the dark web or other places like that which kind of reinforces their um, belief that what they're doing is okay so those cognitive distortions that child sex offenders have always used become a lot more powerful because they've got lots of other people around them uh, online saying you know it's fine you know this is perfectly normal um, so it's a, it's a kind of a, a weird paradox that on one hand the technology is helping uh, identify a lot of these people who probably would have been hard to identify before but at the same token it's also um, arguably accelerating that journey between um, you know, getting over the wall. It's helping people get over the wall because it's providing a lot of material for them to fantasize and masturbate to, uh, which then uh, takes them on that journey to um, hands-on abuse arguably quicker than it would have done some years ago. And certainly now the age profile of child sex offenders uh, it appears to be getting a lot lot younger uh, certainly in my experience it was not uncommon to be uh, dealing with boys in their sort of mid-teens mid to late teens was becoming more and more common whereas I think you know 20 25 years ago it was it probably was more of the stereotypical kind of um, you know middle-aged man you know with the big glasses and the comb over uh, and on that one, if you ever go into someone's house and find a load of stuff to do with uh, Star Trek, um, there seems to be a very, very strong correlation between people. I'm really sorry if this, if you're really into Star Trek and you're not remotely interested in sexually interested in children, but uh, it's kind of a standing joke with cops that, um, yeah, there seems to be a very strong correlation with sci-fi generally, actually and those who are active child sex offenders and I know that's going to really upset a lot of people who are really into sci-fi and not remotely interested but there does seem to be it is a kind of a standing joke when when people uh, we used to go around and e execute warrants and we would see through the window that there was a load of Star Trek models and we think oh yeah we've got a, we've got a live one here 100%. In fact, uh, there, was a, there was a funny story, um, which is on the internet. You can find it yourself on HuffPost. Uh, and I'll quote from the article that um, 
child sexual exploitation section of the Toronto Sex Crimes Unit. Uh, there was a, a, a statistic that of more than 100 offenders the unit had arrested over the last four years, all but one had been a hardcore Trekkie, um, which is just absolutely unbelievable. But I know through my own experience, I've seen this myself, there is something very strange there about an obsession with sci-fi and Star Trek and child sex offending. Um, I'll read from the article again a bit more just to, just to show you that I'm not making this up. So just reading from the article again, it says here, In fact, Star Trek paraphernalia has so routinely been found at the homes of the paedophiles they've arrested that it's become a gruesome joke in the squad room. On the wall, there's a Star Trek poster with the detective's faces replacing those of the crew members. This does not mean that watching Star Trek makes you a paedophile. It does mean that if you're a paedophile, odds are you've watched a lot of Star Trek. And there's another article which is in the Standard, which goes back to, um, I believe, 2015. And I'll read from this. This is a funny one. Um, the ex-wife of a man who transformed his flat into the bridge of Star Trek's Voyager spaceship is selling the property after she won it in a divorce battle. Mr. Allen... Uh, a former interior designer was jailed in 2013 for downloading and sharing child sex abuse pictures and the flat has been occupied. I mean, I, I, I give you that stuff just as a sort of a slightly amusing aside, um, but I think it would be absolutely wrong of, of you or anyone to think that, that um, if you're not interested in Star Trek, then then you're, you're okay. The, the reality is that uh, child sex offenders are um, come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, ages, and they look no different to anyone else walking down the street, generally speaking. I mean, there is a bit of a, a sort of a, a, there was a kind of a standing joke uh, for years that um, an awful lot of child sex offenders were kind of slightly overweight, sweaty blokes in their sort of 40s and 50s with comb overs and and big glasses and the big glasses was another another sort of joke amongst detectives and I remember Joe Sullivan saying on one of the training courses he said the longer I do this job for the smaller my glasses get which I thought was uh, was very amusing but I think it's fair to say that um you know do not sort of try and um pigeonhole individuals into thinking well he doesn't have big glasses and he doesn't he's not interested in star trek so that means he's he's probably all right the fact is that that the people who do this are extremely clever at covering their tracks and they are just as likely to be the father of your son's or daughter's best friend at school or a teacher or uh, and that's another thing that's worth pointing out that uh, you know people who get into positions of trust have to go through the um, disclosure and barring DBS checks uh, used to be called CRB checking. Um, th that is, for the purposes of child sex offending, that is almost useless because the only people who will come up in that sort of check will be those who have already come to the notice of police. And I would say probably more than 90% of people who sexually offend against children will have never been caught. Right, there you go. On that cheerful note, I'm going to leave it with you. I hope you find that useful and interesting. And as I say, my, my intention with all of this is to educate. Um, and hopefully if you listen to what I've just said there and think about how that applies to in your life 
um, you know, and the, the people I would really, really urge to be to take this ever so seriously are people who are, are women with young children who are maybe newly single uh, and they meet a someone who seems to be, um, you know, delightful, really great with the kids and all of this kind of stuff. Just be very, very careful because that is very often um, one of the most common ways of of men accessing children. Generally speaking, they will offend against children who are not their own biological children. However, you know, there clearly are many, many occasions when men do also do offend against their biological children. But I think it's important to point out that, you know, if you're newly single and some man walks into your life, um, just do your due diligence and uh, just you know, make sure you've you've had those conversations with your children about safe touching, what is safe touching, uh, and then to reassure them that, you know, they can always talk to you no, no matter how difficult or kind of awkward that subject might be. And if you're in that category, um, just remind you that you do have the ability, if you've if you've got a, a child and you've you've met a uh, a man, uh, for example, who's walked into your life, you don't really know very much about them. Um, there's a thing called the Child Sex Offender Disclosure Scheme, uh, and you can uh, inquire at your local police station or ring them up and ask about that. And uh, what they what they can do is you, um, they are duty-bound now by law to disclose any relevant offence that... Uh, to, to kind of make you aware of that. So that is that is a that was called Sarah's law, and it was uh, brought in um, back uh, in the two thousands after the murder, abduction, rape, and murder of uh, Sarah Payne, who was uh, abducted by a paedophile, Roy Whiting, um, back in I believe about the year two thousand. So, um, but having said that, just to you know reiterate, just because you're not someone isn't on that, uh, just because someone hasn't got a conviction, uh, that doesn't really mean very much at all. Because uh, as I say, ninety percent of people will never be um, identified or arrested. So, just use your common sense, uh, and if you see anything, or listen to your in- listen to your instincts. Uh, if you see anything, keep your lines of communication with your kids wide open. And um, yeah, don't be naive. That would be my number one piece of advice to people. Don't be gullible. Don't be naive. If you see something or hear something that makes you feel uncomfortable, then treat it very, very seriously. And finally, just some advice for anyone who uh, is concerned about a child. If there's something that you're worried about that you see uh, or you hear about from a third party and you're uncomfortable about maybe speaking directly to the parents of that child or to the school or whatever, there are ways of making disclosures to organisations such as the NSPCC who've got a confidential line where you can give that information over to them. They will make the authorities aware. Uh, Inquiries will be carried out discreetly in order to try and get to the bottom of what that might be. And you can either speak to a trained um, person completely anonymously uh, or, uh, or make that disclosure online via the NSPCC website. And, uh, and finally, um, for any men who might be listening to this or anyone for that matter who might be listening to this, but it's predominantly going to be men who find themselves in this category just because of the statistics, if you are troubled by your own 
uh, feelings, sexual feelings towards children, and you feel anxious and conflicted about that. There's also help for you too uh, through an organisation called Stop It Now. So Stop It Now are a uh, national charity in the UK, um, which is helping to prevent child sexual abuse and is specifically um, looking to support those individuals who, who may feel that they are themselves a risk to children. And that helpline can be contacted on 0808 1900. That's 0808 1900. Or you can go onto their website, which is stopitnow, all one word, .org .uk. Right, I hope you find that useful. I'll leave it with you. Thanks. <laughs>